0: Welcome back for another episode of the Religions Podcast. Here at Religions, I tell stories and do interviews, or sometimes I just walk and talk to discuss the truths which have been revealed to mankind through scientific discovery and through spiritual discovery called revelation. I am the host of the Religions Podcast, Stephen Gardner. A quick note that I want to add before we get into our story today is this. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, however, am not speaking for the church when I do this podcast. It contains my personal beliefs, so if you are a member of the church or someone wanting to know more about the church and what its members believe, this is not the place to do that. My purpose for this podcast is to bring science to a religious audience. To do that, one of the things that I have been trying to do and will intend to keep doing is to tear down the walls that keep believers from listening to the ideas of science. I also try to do the other, the opposite of that, and tear down the walls that scientists may have put up to prevent them from listening to what the religious have to say. I am a firm believer that eventually, when we understand all truth, science and religion will be compatible, not irreconcilable. I feel we will get to that point faster if we start listening to one another. I hope that this podcast will help accomplish that. In short... I'm not speaking as a mouthpiece for Christianity or for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor am I a chosen mouthpiece for any specific field of the sciences. I am just a guy who feels that people do better when they quit feeling attacked and open their minds and hearts to listen. Nothing is more discouraging for a scientist than to speak to a group of religious people only to see a bunch of people who have already dismissed everything that they're about to say. The same is true of a religious person who is speaking to a group of scientists only to see that they refuse to listen. Let's do better and quit feeling like we're being attacked. Also, before I get rolling, you'll notice there are a few more segments in the podcast today. I will include these as part of the podcast going forward. At uh, each of the new segments, there will be a break with a sound. If you can identify the sounds correctly at each break, I will give you a call-out on the next podcast. Now, again, you'll have to identify all the sounds, so at each break there will be a sound. You'll need to identify all the sounds correctly in order for the call-out to happen in the next podcast. To submit, send me a message through the website at religions.org, or if you follow me on social media, you can do it there. Please specify which episode your, uh, your guesses are for so that I know if you get them right or not. All right, it's time for media share. This is a new segment to the podcast, which I haven't previously done. In this segment, I will share a book, a podcast, movie, or other media, which I have found to be wonderful and worth sharing. Today, I want to share with you a podcast entitled 13 Minutes to the Moon. It's produced by the BBC World Service. It's an excellent and a well-researched podcast that has two seasons currently out, Season 1 is about the 13 minutes from the time Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin left Mike Collins in the nice stable orbit where they had been going around the moon to go down to the surface of the moon. It took 13 minutes for that descent. And that first season is about that 13 minutes. But they, of course, tell you some of the backstory leading up to that event of that 13 minutes. Very, 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 very cool stuff. You'll love it. In Season 2, the podcast deals with the Apollo 13 mission, which is quite uh, quite interestingly, the topic for my podcast today. So, look for 13 Minutes to the Moon by the BBC World Service on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you found religions. And now to introduce today's topic. I assume that most people have heard the phrase, heat rises, before. If you've had the experience of sleeping on bunk beds, you may know that the top bunk is hotter than the bottom bunk. Or, if you have uh, ever noticed that when you lay on the floor on a hot day, it's cooler down there than it is if you're sitting in a chair or standing up in the same room. Perhaps, while you know this, you may have been a little confused when you go outside, you hike up a high mountain just to find out that the air is cooler up on the high mountain than it is on the valley floor. That seems kind of contradictory, doesn't it? Why is it cooler on the mountaintop when heat rises... And it's hotter, you know, when we're inside a room, when we're up, you know, on top bunk, on the top bunk it's hotter. So how come it's not hotter on the mountain? If that's ever confused you, maybe today you'll be able to figure out why after you listen to, the, to today's podcast. Um, now, let's see if we can learn a lesson from somebody who observed God's creations in a way which nobody before him ever could have. And only a very few after him might have. Today's story is a true one. Two of the characters in it are still alive today. I haven't interviewed them, and I don't have their permission to tell the story. But what I do have, I have gleaned from many, many, many sources, which, of course, have written about this. Um, however, the, the very specific thing that was learned that I'm going to be talking about that has to do with heat rising, I learned from a book called A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chakin, a great book. This isn't the media share part, but that's a great book, and I've posted it before on the website as one that I recommend. My intentions are to be as accurate as I can and respectful as I can of the explorers involved in this story. I would feel terrible if I misrepresented them in any way, which, uh, is of course, I'm trying not to. But in this retelling, I hope I'm also giving them credit for all the brave acts and the work which they put in. The men and women involved in this program were some of the brightest and most wonderful people for the job that I think could have ever been picked. So, with no further ado, here's the story. Heat rises, or does it?
1: T-minus one minute, T-minus one minute, and counting. Now, in the final minute of our countdown, at the 30-second mark, swing arm number one will retract. T-minus 50 seconds, as we pass the T-minus 50-second mark, the power transfer takes place. First stage, second stage, third stage, and the instrument unit going to internal power. T-minus 37 seconds, and our count continues to go well. We'll be looking for an ignition of those five first stage engines at the T-minus 8.9 second mark. We've passed T-minus 30. T-minus 25 seconds and counting, and Apollo 13 is go. T-minus 20 seconds. T-minus 20 seconds and counting. 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. This is Mission Control Houston. We appear to have a good first stage at this point. officer says the trajectory looks good we show one half mile in altitude at this time 13 Houston
2: go at 30 seconds roll complete and we're pitching. Roger that stand by for mode 1 bravo
1: mark 1 bravo, one bravo. Command. altitude 1.2 miles velocity 1500 feet per second
0: that was just three and a half days ago just three days ago and they were safely on Earth, strapped in their spacecraft, atop an enormous rocket, which, with all the parts together, weighed over six and a half million pounds, sitting on the launch pad. From its base to its tip, it was over 360 feet long. So if you turned it sideways, you could place it on the goalposts of an American football field, with 30 feet extending past the goalposts on each side. The only problem would be that the goalposts wouldn't be able to support the weight of this behemoth. Perhaps you've heard the game where you can see how many people you can fit into a Volkswagen Beetle? Those involved in the Apollo program could have played a different game. They could have asked how many Volkswagen Beetles you could fit into an F1 engine. Each one of the engines is 12 feet in diameter and over 19 feet tall. There were five of these monstrous engines on the bottom of the first of three stages on the rocket. When these rocket engines ignite... The entire rocket shakes so hard that the astronauts are barely able to push any buttons or toggle any switches. Together, the engines generate 7.6 million pounds of thrust as they push the tremendous weight above them to a height of 30 miles in about two minutes. But as I said, that was three and a half days ago. Now they are on day four of their mission. Jim, Fred and Jack Are worn out. The constant barrage of problems since the accident have kept their minds and bodies active. The first stage of the rocket, as intimidating as it was, went fine. The second stage had a hiccup and one of the engines shut down early, but that was easy enough to compensate for by burning the other four engines a little bit longer. With that mishap, Jim felt like they had experienced their problem for the flight. But unfortunately, that wasn't all that the Apollo 13 mission was going to throw at this crew. No, the problem happened later, when nobody was expecting it, and while the ship and crew were coasting smoothly and peacefully toward the moon. In fact, they had just barely finished a TV broadcast to Earth. It happened at a time of the mission when they all thought a problem was not likely to occur.
2: 13. We've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, uh, I have a shaft and trunnion for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Okay. Houston, say again, please. Yes. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt.
0: The continued days of stress that followed have taken their toll, but the astronauts haven't stopped to fret about it. Jim had been this far away from home before. This time, it felt much farther away than the last time. On the Apollo 8 mission, Jim and his fellow astronauts had pioneered their way through the first mission to the moon. That mission went flawlessly, probably the only Apollo mission which went off without a hitch. On that mission, they also made a record for being the farthest away from home that anyone had ever traveled. Just a few hours ago, the men on board this ship broke that record as they went around the moon. At the farthest point, they were 248,655 miles away from home. At this point, the moon's gravitation arced their path so that they would once again be heading home. At the current time, they are over 200,000 miles away from Earth. But at least now they are heading in the right direction. Going around the moon and heading right back home wasn't the original plan. The mission was to settle into an orbit around the moon. Then Jack was to stay in the command module, called Odyssey, and continue orbiting while Jim and Fred were to take the lunar module, Aquarius, and descend to the edge of the Framoral crater. Since the accident, Jim knew that he wouldn't be able to make that landing. The honor of being fifth and sixth men to walk on the moon would be left to the men of the next lunar mission. There was no time to wallow in the disappointment of this realization, though. There was too much surviving to do and too many problems that kept creeping up, and too many adjustments that needed to be made to keep the men alive since the accident 30 hours before. So the plan had changed. After the accident, it was important to get these men home as soon as possible, so lunar orbits and landings would be the stuff of other missions. Instead, mission control had set them on a free return trajectory, or a slingshot maneuver around the moon utilizing lunar gravity to do the work of turning the ship around. When did the problem happen? At 55 hours, 55 minutes, mission elapsed time. Then, they were first reaching the distance of 175,000 miles from Earth, heading toward the moon at 3,100 feet per second. That's more than 2,100 miles an hour, or roughly Mach 3. One of the slowest speeds they would see on the mission. They were still being slowed by Earth's gravity at this point, but they were rapidly approaching the point where the moon's gravity would be stronger and they would speed up again. Flight for them at this point required no engines. In space, Newton's laws of motion were proving true. Once they were in motion, they would stay in motion, without air outside to slow them down or drag of any kind upon their spacecraft. Once they attained a speed, they kept it except, of course, for the work which gravity itself was doing on them to either slow them down or speed them up. This is the condition they were in when everything went wrong. So what exactly went wrong, you ask? They didn't know for sure. They had just finished the TV broadcast, and Jack was over at the controls, carrying out actions, which Mission Control was calling up to him. The hatch, which separated Odyssey from Aquarius, was not in place, They had taken it down so they could show both to the TV audience. Then, suddenly, there was a bang. Jim looked at Fred. Fred had already played the trick of triggering the cabin repressurization valve, which also caused a bang. Jim could tell by the confused look on Fred's face that he hadn't done anything. Fred had heard it, too. He wondered if a meteorite had hit the ship. Jack had just finished stirring up the cryogenic oxygen tanks. Something they had to do to keep the liquefied oxygen from forming into layers in the tank and reducing the usable tank pressure. Whatever happened, it created a bang and sent the gauges on the ship to all sorts of unusual readings. This was how Jack and then Jim reported the problem to Mission Control at Houston.
2: Okay, stand by, 13. We're looking at
0: it. For over 13 minutes, the ship crew and the ground crew struggled to make sense of all that was happening. But it was this announcement from Jim that helps most to make sense of what is going on up at 175,000 feet. Yeah,
2: that's a that's good thing you see. And it looks to, now, to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that uh, we are venting something. Uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your It's a gas of some sort.
0: As a surprised deer, with its neck torn by a wolf, starts to bleed out, so this spacecraft had started pouring its oxygen out, evaporating into the vast vacuum of space. Then, like the deer, the men in the spacecraft and their ground crew started to make sense of what had happened. In the minutes and hours that followed, the crew of the ship and mission control struggled first to understand what was going on wasn't just a set of erratic instrumentation data, but a real problem, and then to save as much of this lifeblood as they could. Oxygen was not only necessary for the passengers to breathe, it was vital to flying the ship. Their power couldn't be generated without it, and without power, they couldn't fly in space. Oxygen was key for life support, communications, and navigation. They simply couldn't find their way home without an onboard computer. Getting home wasn't as simple as aiming towards the Earth and hoping for the best. It was only about a 5 degree angle at which they could safely re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And with all their limited visibility, it was hard for the astronauts to determine anything about where they were. How far away the Earth was, their speed with respect to the Earth, all of these things couldn't be figured out without an onboard computer, and oxygen was needed in the fuel cells to create the power to keep it running. To make matters even more difficult, it became obvious to some of the men on the ground very quickly that with the little remaining oxygen they had, they had to start saving power, and start saving it now. The problem had started over 28 hours ago, and since that time these three men had been working to try to keep things together. In the first few minutes they realized that their main ship, or command module, Odyssey, was hopelessly leaking oxygen. They moved over to the other ship, the one which Jim and Fred were supposed to take down to land on the moon. It was referred to as the Lunar Module or LEM, but the ship's official name is Aquarius. As soon as the men powered down the command module and moved navigation to the Aquarius, they knew they couldn't land on the moon. They weren't as upset about this as one might expect since a more pressing problem weighed on their minds. Aquarius couldn't sustain life for three people for very long. It was designed to keep two people alive for two days, not three people for what was going to have to be at least four days. In order to make their resources stretch long enough to get them home, they would have to shut down the lunar module as well, leaving only a few vital items. Since they had done this, the ship had steadily grown colder slowly losing the heat it contained as they coasted gently through space. Now, before we get too far along in our story, there's some things you should know about the crew. John Leonard, Leonard, or Jack Swigert, had been a test pilot before he became an astronaut. He is also a mechanical engineer and aerospace engineer. On this mission, he is filling the role of command module pilot, Now that Odyssey, which is the command module, has been turned off to save oxygen and power, he is a crew member without a job. He will remain that way until the time they need Odyssey again, when they are getting ready to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Only Odyssey can handle the job of getting them home. Aquarius, which is the ship that is keeping them alive now, is intended to land on the moon. In fact, it is the first true spacecraft, in that it was the first ship built to fly only in space. A bit more about Aquarius in a minute. Jack is probably one of the very best astronauts to have on this mission. He knows the command module better than perhaps anyone, and he knows how things work. He is extremely intelligent, and a great pick to be in control of the ship. He had been on the backup crew, and when Ken Mattingly, the astronaut who is expected to be piloting Odyssey on the mission, was exposed to German measles, the mission doctors had grounded him, and Jack was promoted to prime crew. Jim and Fred had every confidence in Jack and his abilities, and were glad to have him on the mission. Fred Wallace Hayes, Jr. is an aeronautical engineer who graduated with honors from the University of Oklahoma. He also had worked as a test pilot, something which he has in common with almost all the astronauts currently employed at NASA. He and his wife, Mary, are the parents of three children and have one more on the way. On this mission, he was to be the sixth man on the moon separating the Aquarius from the Odyssey and the service module and heading down for two days on the moon, leaving Jack alone to keep the Odyssey in orbit. They had activities and experiments to perform as part of the mission plan. Now, that was no longer part of the plan. As the lunar module pilot, he and Jim will be the ones in charge of firing the lunar module descent engine in order to make course corrections and other adjustments to bring them all home. This is another thing which is different about this mission. The lunar module is intended to fly on its own, not to push the rest of the spacecraft. Flying the lunar module in this way was like learning to fly all over again. James Arthur Lovell Jr., Jim, is a naval aviator and test pilot. He holds the record among astronauts for the most time in space. He was helped greatly by his 14 days in space as part of the Gemini 7 mission. After that mission, he flew in Gemini 12. And again on Apollo 8, he and his crewmates were the first people to go to the moon. At 42 years old, he is one of the oldest astronauts. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis and started flying for the Navy afterward. Suffice it to say, Jim is no stranger to flight. As commander of this mission, his was to be the honor of being the fifth man on the moon, since Jim has already announced that this will be his last flight. This means he will not have the opportunity to be on the moon. Something that every astronaut dreams of. Now his focus is to get his crew home. His focus has been honed by training and reinforced by countless hours of practice. He knows his flying machine and he knows his crew. He has had experience working with mission control and solving problems in spaceflight. Jim is the perfect choice as commander for this flight. He is aware of the lives under his command the very lives that he wants to get back to Earth. Jim is fascinated by the fact that up where they are, his family, his office, his friends, and all the things that define his normal day, and his experiences, along with five billion people, can all hide behind his thumb. That's all the bigger the Earth appears from this altitude. He is doing the best he can to get his crew back there. But, most importantly for Jim, he intends to return to his wife Marilyn, and their four children, Barbara, James, Susan, and Jeffrey. The lunar module Aquarius, since it's designed only to fly in space, is very fragile. It was made to be as light as possible. So they designed it in such a way that it had very thin walls. In fact, in some places, it was as thick as only a few layers of aluminum foil. Just thick enough to hold the air pressure the crew needed to survive. The ship is their lifeboat now, functioning at the lowest possible power. Though it is keeping them alive now, it is completely inadequate for the role of getting them back to Earth. Since they will be hitting the Earth's atmosphere at speeds over 30,000 feet per second, the atmosphere will create tremendous friction on anything which approaches at this speed. Aquarius will be nothing more than a brief speck of light as it burns up on its way down. No, Odyssey will be the ship that will take them home. On the bottom of Odyssey, right up against the service module as it sits right now, is the heat shield, the part of the craft that is intended to take the tremendous heat of re-entry, something that the crew hopes is still functional after the bang of about 30 hours ago. Now, as they are just about to leave the influence of the moon's gravity, Jim and Jack are going to take advantage of the opportunity to get some rest. To do so, they head through the hatch into the command module, leaving Fred to take a shift running the ship until they return. They have three hours scheduled for their sleep. Fred is speaking to fellow astronaut Jack Lausma, who is the capsule communicator. He's on shift at Mission Control. Jack is the same Capcom that was on shift when the accident occurred.
2: Okay, just below 13, and uh, just for your information, uh, we've got uh, people working on uh, several subjects. We're working on the uh, mid-course coming up, determine uh, our control system and uh, how to do it with a control system. We uh, select what we should do about the alignment. We've got the LMS and uh, a couple of crews cranked up working on that. And uh, we're also working on our entry, how and when we ought to uh, activate the CSM. And uh, we're working on the CSM system. Okay, I'm uh, reading on my monitor here, Fred, that you're uh, 16,214 miles away from the moon, moving at uh, about 4,500 feet a second. gone on and it's still going on. Uh, this flight's uh, probably a lot uh, bigger test of the uh, system on the ground than up here. Yeah, you've been, uh, you've been working it out a little bit.
0: It was nice to have a familiar voice from Earth at a time like this. The spacecraft was cold and damp around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 4.4 degrees Celsius. Jim and Jack are floating with their arms folded in a weightless state, getting ready for sleep. In order to understand a bit more about what is going on in the spacecraft right now, let's stop for a second and learn some things that the world doesn't think about very much. Number 1. Gravity We've talked a bit about gravity already. Both Earth and the moon are exerting gravity fields, which affect the spacecraft, causing it to change speed or accelerate toward one or the other. Anything that has mass has gravity, not just big things like the Earth and the moon. But you and I, even the little ants on the anthill have gravity. It is the interaction of something's mass with the gravity of Earth that gives it weight on Earth. My refrigerator is heavier than I am because it has more mass, and therefore more interaction with Earth's gravity field. An ant weighs less because it has less mass and less interaction with the same field. Another thing to understand about gravity. Since we have already talked about how gravity is affecting the spacecraft, you will realize that they were not in zero gravity. They were, however, weightless. Amusement parks are a good place to get some experience with weightlessness. You are weightless when you are falling. A person in free fall feels perfectly weightless. This is the feeling that these three astronauts have experienced since they first got into orbit around Earth. In orbit, gravity is constantly changing the course of the spacecraft as it falls toward the Earth. But to maintain orbit, the spacecraft needs to be going fast enough to keep going around the Earth as it falls, so that it never really approaches the surface. It is just falling around the Earth as it goes, keeping it moving in a circle around the globe constantly. So our astronauts are affected by gravity, but they are weightless because they are falling freely in the gravity field that affects them. They feel weight again each time they fire the rockets to maneuver the spacecraft. Number 2. Gases and Gas Pressure At sea level on Earth, the pressure of air is about 14.7 pounds per square inch. The lunar module was only filled with a pressure of about 5 psi which is about how much air pressure there is on top of Mount Everest. On Earth, one of the tricks that people learned is that since hot air is less dense than colder air, it means that it will float on the colder air. That is why on hot, humid days, you can almost watch the clouds form as the hot air rises up, carrying moisture with it. As it rises, it expands and cools. And as the pressure decreases until it is cool enough to condense the water in the air, it makes a cloud. This is a quick and simple explanation, but it will have to work for now so you can understand the amazing discovery Jim is about to make. Number 3. Heat and Heat Transfer Heat can move in more ways than one. It can move when objects of different temperature touch each other. The hotter object will transfer heat to the colder one. When I say hot or cold here, I'm talking about temperature, which is actually just a measurement of how much motion the molecules of a substance have. Hotter means the molecules are moving faster. An example of this would be putting a cold frying pan on a hot surface. When you put the fry pan on the hot surface, the molecules in the hot surface bump into the atoms of the fry pan. As they do this, they start to move faster as well. Eventually, all these bumpings keep happening and the fry pan will have as much energy as the surface it is put on. Or in other words, they will arrive at the same temperature. When the sun heats the ground, the molecules in the air next to the ground will get heat from the ground in the same way. We already discussed what will happen as the air heats up, so now you have a more complete picture of this. The actual act of air rising as it heats up is called convection. It works in all fluids, liquid and gases alike. If you have ever been the first in a pool on a sunny day, you may have noticed that the water on the top is hotter than the water at the bottom. Hot water, like hot air, is less dense and will float to the top of the colder water. Convection is responsible for moving heat around and driving many of the patterns of our weather on earth. Another way heat moves is by radiation. No, not the nuclear kind. The kind you may have noticed when you search for shade on a sunny day. It's hotter in the sunshine because when you are in direct sunlight, you are receiving heat from the sun by way of radiation. Radiated heat is invisible light rays that are given off by anything that has energy. The hotter something is, the more radiation it gives off. As Jim and Jack moved over to Odyssey, they noticed how cold things were getting. With the ship heating systems and circulation fans off, the ship was gradually losing heat. Something you may wonder about is how the spacecraft is getting colder. It can't be losing heat by conduction or through contact between particles because the spacecraft is in space. There are no molecules or atoms outside of the ship for it to lose heat to. Or in other words, the outer skin of the spacecraft isn't in contact with anything and can't lose heat to something that isn't there. So this keeps the spacecraft very well insulated. But it is losing heat through radiation. If someone could see the light of the infrared spectrum, they would see the spacecraft glowing like a light bulb in the blackness of space, losing energy all the way. With all of this considered, one thing was obvious to the members of the crew. They were losing more heat than they were gaining, because it was cold. Too cold to sleep comfortably. As Jim was floating in the silence, trying to take advantage of the time he had to sleep, he noticed something strange, which perhaps nobody had ever been able to experience before. As he stayed still, it seemed to warm up a bit, making sleep more comfortable. Perhaps he was just getting used to it. But then, when he moved, he noticed something else. If he moved his hand away from his body, the air got colder. If he brought it back toward him, the air was warmer. He was floating in a bubble of warm air. If he held still enough, his body warmed the air around him, creating a warm blanket of air surrounding him. It was a fantastic realization, which ran counter to his experience. On Earth, such a thing couldn't happen. As the air around him warmed on Earth, it would rise up, because the less dense air would rise on the higher density cold air. So it would instantly go buoyant. Here, in cold weightlessness, it would stay right there next to his body. It was like one kindness which was extended on this mission, where everything seemed to be going wrong. Despite his best efforts, and the newly found warm friend that he had discovered, Jim couldn't relax. Before long, he was awake and back to work. There would be time to rest when they all got home. Thanks for listening to today's story, Heat Rises or Does It, here at Religions. If you have a request for a topic that you'd like covered in the podcast, feel free to send us a message through the website at religions.org or on social media. You can also go to the website to see links and show notes. I would appreciate it very much if you would leave feedback and let me know what you think of the show. This will help others to find our podcast as well. Thanks again for listening. From Religions, this is Stephen Gardner. That concludes this episode of the Religions podcast. Thanks for letting us be a part of what you hear today.